Clarita here, and I've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. If you want to release your music into the world, DistroKid's the easiest way to get your music into all the major streaming platforms, unlimited uploads, and keep 100% of your royalties. And because you're a Design Freaks listener, you get 30% off. Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash Design Freaks. DistroKid. Scott. Hey, how you doing? Uh, welcome back to Design Freaks Podcast. So today we have Scott Lindbergh here, uh, who is a local graphic designer. Actually, you live in Edmonds. Yeah. So an Edmonds graphic designer and a curator of album cover artwork. Um, so I wanted to bring him in and have him talk about his most recent show over at Civilization in Pioneer Square, and uh, maybe some future projects. Yeah, so we just are closing a show at Non-Breaking Space, the Civilization Gallery, and we were looking at abstract record covers, so non-representational, you know, mm-hmm. more formal, um, kinds of designs, you know, from the 50s and 60s, mostly mid-century. So we decided on 20 designers who were going to focus on, chose 100 records from those 20 people, and Mm -hmm. assembled a show out of it. Um, And it's all kind of revolving around this abstract, non-representational, having the the form of the record cover represent the the sound on the record rather than the artist, or you know, just showing a photo of someone on the on the sleeve. And what era are they mostly from? The show covers, I think, nineteen fifty to nineteen seventy six, more or less. So we're looking at you know the, those mid century designers that. You know, big names like Saul Bass, and then small names that people have kind of forgotten. That you know, designers that have been lost to time. People like Barbara Brown or Jerry Olin. The show was so cool. You just had your closing party, um, and it was up for a while. Yeah, right? I think There's... we were up for two and a half or three months. Right. Uh, where can people find that uh, imagery? To if you could, don't live in Seattle or you want to see this collection, where can they find it? So there's a catalog for the show on the Non-Breaking Space website. I believe that's non-breaking.space. Um, and just I'll put a this, link up. And just look for the, the shape of sound. And we have a catalog with all 100 pictures or all 100 album sleeves and bios for each of the people that we were talking about. And, a little intro. And so there's quite a bit of information, all downloadable as a PDF. 
The catalog is so cool, and I learned a lot going to the show. Um, like you said, there's some big names like Saul Bass, but I think we want to talk about today one of the s- lesser-known people. Yeah, or I think that I'd, I'd qualify up as kind of someone who time forgot for a while and now is starting to be recognized again, I hope. Yeah. Um, Name a few of the people from the show. We'll get into Ronald Klein, but what are some other people? There are some women, too. Right yeah, now. both Barbara Brown and Jerry Olin are, are women. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about them, and I've done tons and tons of digging, and they've just been kind of lost to time. So hopefully, someone will be able to figure out sometime who they were, but their work is pretty amazing. It's pretty crazy how women of that era, even up till the 90s, didn't get credit. Or It's surprising that they were given credit at all. That honestly. their names were attached, right. yeah. Because, so, you know, more often than not, designers were not given credit at all, male or female. Right. And it's very uncommon for women to be given the credit when they've done the work. So It's usually just the in-house record label designer or or some studio or the art director right that's true um so what is different about ronald klein yeah i'm kind of obsessed with ronald klein and i don't really know if i can put a finger on why i i guess i came to know of his work maybe 10 or 12 years ago and he did this series of records for columbia that Mm -hmm. are very heavily reliant on dividing graphic space, dividing space in a geometric way and then using pattern um, instead of photography to give texture and depth and all that. Um, So he's using like marbled papers and, um, you know, hand-drawn whatever blots and whatever and then, you know, dividing that up into some sort of composition to to anchor a, a, like a masthead of typography. Mm-hmm. And he was approaching that all very different than a lot of the people at the time, too, because he was anchoring these little blocks of type kind of in random places on the sleeve where a lot of people were just putting a banner across the tops to make it easy to flip through in the yeah. pens. Well, this was the, that's mostly his work for Columbia. The funny thing Columbia, is okay. there's a lot of overlap. He worked with maybe six or eight different record publishers. Mm -hmm. Um, He's best known for his work at Folkways, where he's art director for 20-something years. He was art director from, like, 1946 to 1986 or something Mm -hmm. like that. So that was, like, 40 years he was there. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and and that work is a little more photographically oriented, where, Mm -hmm. you know, he would... He was a big collector of uh, indigenous Pacific art. So he would often take a photo of a mask or something from his collection for, you know, these collections of um, these record. The records were basically um, showcasing different folk types of music. So he did a lot of covers for, you know, indigenous music and he'd use the indigenous indigenous objects on the the cover Mm -hmm. do you know 
these very simple uncoated paper, which is super nice. And you know, printing a one color photograph, over printing it on a colored paper, uh. and using a second color for typo, you, you get this really rich image. So with nice. A kind of economy of you know, it's not like Folkways was raking in the bucks. It's not like they were yeah. you know doing big pop artists. It's you know frog sounds from the <laughs> I really want to find the Frog Sounds album and put it on the Instagram. I so wish that I had it. That's <laughs> one that I like. um, yeah, so I'll have to I'll have to reference these and, and get them up on the the um, Instagram so people can see what you're talking about. But um, so his time at Columbia, he sort of was experimenting. Yeah, that's kind of the feeling that I get. There's no real documentation of what he was trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't really talk about any of the small, you know, the smaller jobs that, you know, for Columbia, he did maybe 250 records, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, Folkway series is over 500. Um, but he was directing. He was, okay. yeah. So, well, he was physically, he was the art director for, for Folkways, but he was the only person doing the art. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So okay. He, he uh, had very hands-on. <laughs> I should say so. Yeah. Um, but okay, so another weird thing about him um, is his origin story, right? Yeah, so right. he started out as a teenager being super interested in horror and fantasy. As we are. And um, <laughs> so his first work was, or his first published work was, I think came out, it was published when he was 18, mm-hmm. and it was for a science fiction fanzine mm-hmm. not even there's lo- there's lots of really obscure little you know stapled fanzines that he was doing okay. you know, interior artwork for mm-hmm. um, and i have a, a few examples of those in, in my archive but okay um, maybe we could post so I one try to share some of them yeah that'd be cool um, so yeah he was doing lots of that you know really underground you know photocopied and stapled thing in the mm-hmm. mid 40s or early 40s which mm-hmm. is crazy we, you know I think of fanzines <laughs> mid 90s or early 90s but this is this is the know, beginning it was the grandfather yeah wow um, but so he went from doing those and started working with Arkham House a publisher in Wisconsin who uh-huh. published all of HP uh, Lovecraft's stories Whoa. and then he did you know, all sorts of random. I think he did 30 or 40 different Arkham House covers over the course of that, you know, between the 1946 maybe and the early 60s or something. So this is, I'm looking at his Wikipedia, um, it's calling out the Arkham Sampler. Right. Um, which has really nice typography. Um, yeah, what, what else stands out about his early work? That stuff was mostly illustrative. He was is more drawing based than um, conceptual or, or mm-hmm. you know more formal design. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was you know making monster drawings and you know doing all sorts of creepy graveyard scenes. And so it wasn't just his type. It was his. He was drawing all that. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So I have a couple pieces of, of this early. 
original illustration art. So it's like submarines or uh-huh. you know, robed, cloaked figures walking through the forest or, you know, all sorts of, it's kind of all over the place. Imagine how hard it was to be a goth back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it was super underground, the whole horror scene. Yeah. It's like people just, it wasn't something that was in the middle America household, more or less. No, was, no hot topics. It was, uh, you know, probably kids buying it or trading it. Kind of. Yeah. So then he meets Moses Ash, right? Or I guess that was way after. <laughs> this well, was not until well, 48, 1948. Yeah, well, he started our, at Arkham, you know, a few years before he met Mo. Mm-hmm. And so I think that he started, what, did you say 1948? Yeah, 48. Yeah. So, you know, they struck up a friendship, and Mo just kind of gave him free reign to do whatever he wanted. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Record cover should be seen at a glance. You shouldn't have to study different sections of it. You should see the total instantly. Yeah, that was from a Smithsonian interview that he did, I think in the 80s, um, talking mostly about his work for Folkways. But the, I, I, the concept follows through in all of his work. I think that he was trying to create uh, an entire thing rather than kind of sh- trying to show you little passages of stuff. He was trying to make it a cohesive whole. I think he was really successful in doing that. Uh, progression of his imagery, st- you know, starting with the abstract record covers, mm-hmm. which, you know, were er- late 40s, early 50s, and then mm-hmm. going through to some of the later folkway stuff, the 1970s mm-hmm. stuff, when he was doing really formal, you know, there are a couple that are just geometric, like no photography or anything like that, just geometric constructions. And right. I think that those are really interesting, and those are the kind of things that we included in the show. Whereas the bulk of the work from that series was, you know, photographic. Photo-based, okay. Ronald Klein is one of those things that if I don't have one and I come across oh. one, that I can't leave it behind. Oh, my God. Okay, so how many records do you, or record covers, do you own? Uh, it's hard to say. I think that I'm maybe around three or four thousand right now. Okay, that's uh, not. I mean, that's no, a lot, but it's. A, it, I, I downsized a, significantly when we moved to Seattle, so okay. it, that went from probably thirty thousand down to five. Okay, so where were you keeping thirty thousand records? In my garage. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and these records you displayed at the civiliz- at the non-breaking space. There's like zero ringware. They look really pristine. How do you, can you give advice to anyone listening? How do you store your records? It's funny because I go into that, look at the show, and all I see are the pieces with wear. Uh. <laughs> um, I, you know, I never store the record in the sleeve. The okay. record always goes in a paper sleeve. So that's things. not just for shipping. No, that's not just for shipping. That's okay. for storage if you want to preserve the seams and okay. not have. You know, it's super easy to split the front cover off the back cover on those things. So mm-hmm. you know, one one wrong move or you bump your crate the wrong way and things mm-hmm. go shifting and stuff gets torn up. So I always keep the record in a paper sleeve behind a, behind the actual ar- record mm-hmm. and then the whole thing in an archival... Um, Plastic sleeve? Yeah, it's a... 
Do you have a brand that you like? I don't remember if it's PVC or Mylar, the one that's archivable. Okay. No, I buy them in bulk, and then I don't worry about it for years. So okay. <laughs> like a thousand at a time, and then I don't have to deal with it. What do you do when um, you have a record sleeve that's in good shape, but the glue, the adhesive, is sort of just disintegrated? Do you re-glue it? No, no. I leave it alone. Okay. I'm kind of a purist. I, you know, I don't mind in my collection if something has wear. It's just a matter of, you know, this thing has been around for yeah. a couple of decades, so that's fine. Um, but I try not to add to it. Yeah. I try to keep handling down to a minimum. And what about all the humidity in Seattle? It's so moldy that's, here. That's the hardest thing. Yeah. You know, the, the what keeping them sealed in a sleeve that actually has like a resealable glue strip helps a lot because uh -huh. it doesn't let as much of the humidity in. Yeah. But that's a kind of a constant battle. Do you use dehumidifiers where you store your? I should. But I okay. <laughs> I just put one in my new. I live in a new apartment, and it was so gross in there. The air quality was bad, so I put a dehumidifier. In there, plus I have records there. So, I mean, there's over an inch of water in that thing every day. Yeah. So it's gross. <laughs> I keep the bulk of my things, like I said, in the garage. Right. You know, you know stored in sleeves and in bins. And, yeah. You know, the, the, it's kind of as good as it can be for the space that I have. I, I don't have access to a climate control yeah. storage. So, yeah. But the things that are important to me are stored in the house and, you know, in record cases. So, cool. And so you moved to Seattle, you had to downsize. Where did that collection go? It kind of went all over the place. It, it sold off some of it that used to run an online shop. Mm -hmm. So I sold some of them and a big chunk of it got donated to the Herbal Ballin Center. They have a big graphic design archive. What's that? We explain what that is. Uh, it's a center at the Cooper Hewitt that's um, was founded kind of in honor of Herb Lubalin, the typographer and designer. Okay. Um, and they keep archives of various design pieces. Mm -hmm. And I've done some work. That's great. The, the, it's funny, though, the reason I got into Ronald Klein is I was doing some research on a New York-based design studio called Monogram Art Studios. Mm. And in the like around 1950, they were contracted by Columbia to, to redesign their entire classical selection, which was, you know, thousands of record covers. Wow. And it would, so it was too much for them to handle in-house. And so they started hiring freelance designers. So they hired, they were, they hired like Rudolph de Hurac, who was, uh -huh. you know, a big name, who would be a big name a few years later. And they also hired Ronald Klein. So I, I kind of came wow. to Ronald Klein through you know, the, the, I think he did maybe six or eight record covers for Monogram for Columbia. And after Monograms, um, after their contract ran out, he started doing freelance design on his own for Columbia. Okay. And, and that's kind of the bulk of his Columbia work that kind of got me interested in his. Was the classical stuff first? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Cool. So, but then, you know, he did work for. Vanguard and Epic, and mm -hmm. you know, half a dozen different labels, kind of mm -hmm. in smaller quantities. Um, but for each of these companies, he would design a very distinct look 
mm-hmm. although it was still very Ronald Klein. So, you know, elements would spill over early on. Some of the typographic elements from his book covers would spill over. So you'd mm-hmm. do this really pointy calligraphy mm-hmm. for some of the horror covers, and some of that spills over into classical record covers. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, he would do these little patterned areas on the book covers, and that spilled over as well. So some of these things kind of carry through to the different series, but, you know, for, like, Vanguard, he was doing very strict blocks of type and blocks of photo, and mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing that he was doing for, for Folkways, and then for Columbia, he was doing this more abstract, um, almost more, I don't want to say more artistic, but it, mm-hmm. it's... Expressionist, maybe? Yeah, it's a little more expressive. Yeah. What about, so that's such a cool thing to be able to do as a designer to move from place to place, agency to agency or whatever, um, and be able to put yourself in all your work. It's difficult. What about you and your work? Are you influenced by Ronald Klein and the other album designers? I I don't like to say that I'm influenced by them, although... Inspired? I I am... am, (laughs) I guess I am influenced by them, but I try not to take direct. Right. Uh, you know, I try not to take what they were doing and apply. That's it a problematic that. word. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, the, Ronald Klein doing these, uh, you know, their, his marbled paper that he would have photographed and use in mm-hmm. little chunks in some of his. You know, I'd, I've stolen that for a couple projects. And, you know, photos with my iPhone and both. You know. I do a lot of work for a uh, uh, park district in Minnesota. Cool. And so I'd go out and like take pictures of the grass and pictures of rocks and leaves and use those yeah. as kind of textural elements for for their identity. It's it's a it's the spirit of, of that. Right. You know, try through. not to to have it be a pastiche of 1952 just because yeah. it doesn't say the same thing now as it did then. Like it's. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of the stuff from the 50s and 60s that, that you know, Klein did or the, the stuff that's shown in, in The Shape of Sound, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty timeless. Like, it's hard to look at some of it and say, oh, yeah, that Joseph Albers covers was made in 1959, or it could be, you know, something very contemporary. Oh, yeah. A couple series, that there was percussion records. So, yes. So okay. persuasive percussion and... Oh, what was the other one? Gosh, I can't remember. That's terrible. I should know. Well, but so I think six of them were from these percussion series, and then a seventh was a classical record mm-hmm. that he did with the very Joseph Albers drawing on the front. Cool. But the percussion ones are all just dots and squares arranged in different assemblies. I love it. I love the shapes. Maybe I'm just a simple. Idiot. <laughs> well, I think that the you know these people are saying a lot with a really limited visual vocabulary. You know, very li- limiting their their visual vocabulary. Not that mm-hmm. they didn't have a lo- not that they had a limited vocabulary. No, they, they but were able to to distill it down to a point where right they were saying so much with so little, and I think that that's the interesting thing. Surprising that any of them were given the okay to go ahead with it even mm-hmm. just because it was such a 
unknown quantity you know their goal is to try to sell records and when everyone else has a photo of the conductor or of the orchestra mm-hmm. on the front of the record you know if this guy comes up and says okay i'm going to do it and it's going to be a series of you know dots then they're all going to be black dots and the line of black type record covers from kind of their inception word artwork that was right you know when alex steinweiss did that first graphic record cover Mm -hmm. is coming at it from kind of an art historical perspective you know referencing surrealist imagery and whatever okay but so i think that there's always been kind of these figures in the design world that Mm -hmm. have have taken a more artistic stance on it Mm -hmm. um but i think that the whole dots and dashes you know very minimal abstract sleeves. I think that that was a turning point almost Mm -hmm. in album design where, you know, like I keep coming back to Joseph Albers. He was was by far not the first person to do a record cover that was just dots. Mm -hmm. But he was by far the most influential. And after that came out, so many copycats, you know, all these budget labels started started, you know, trying to cash in on. Oh, we can put dots on our records. Too. Right. I still see it. Like I still see throwbacks of that, which I don't even know if they're aware of the exact history. But mm-hmm. I see new uh, designs kind of throwing back to that look. Yeah, it's funny. You know, the record industry or the, the design industry mm-hmm. serving the record industry. Right does like to reference back a lot. Yeah. There's a Ronald Klein record. I can't remember what it is. It's like animal sounds, I think, but it mm-hmm. has a tiger on the front, and that tiger is used. Like, that exact tiger was taken and used on a contemporary pop record. <laughs> I can't remember which <laughs> one it was, but, you know. You hope they know the history and they appreciate it. I can't imagine where they would have gotten <laughs> the imagery other than it's not like it's stock art or something. That yeah. I think that they just... You just scanned it and ripped it off right from the, the Folkways cover. Well, um, okay. Well, I think we're kind of running out of time a little bit. Um, but thank you, Scott, for coming in and coming on to the show for the comeback episode <laughs> after quite a while of, of being away. Um, and what an amazing show you just curated. Again, it was The Shape of Sound, right? Right. That was the name of the show. It was at the non-breaking space at Civilization's studio. And that catalog from the show, I will put a link up in the show notes and probably elsewhere um, to find, or on my website, to uh, get to that PDF download if, if you want to learn more about these um, or about all the designers in the shows. There's more we didn't even mention. But yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a fun little mid-century graphic design nerd out possibility yeah and and keep an eye out for it possibly popping up somewhere else yeah we're hoping to uh, hoping to travel the show so we'll see what happens with it cross all your fingers <laughs> um yeah i hope so too um just where would you want it to go where's the dream spot <laughs> well being over here on this coast like i feel <clears throat> like it needs to hit the midwest and it needs to hit like new york yeah. But we'll see if that happens. And is it will it remain the shape of sound? Is that You know, I think so. 
Okay. It might not be the same 100 covers, and it might be, mm -hmm. you know, depending on space, more or fewer, mm -hmm. probably re revolving around this core body of work, but, mm -hmm. you know, evolving is needed for whatever the space is. My Instagram <laughs> is at uh, DCMNTS, and I almost exclusively mm -hmm. post record covers with a few book covers thrown in. Really cool Instagram, really very well curated, of course. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.